The connection between art and culture, the connection between fly fishing and conservation, and the connection between South Dakota and the moon. From SDPB Radio, it's Tuesday, August 1st, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, a group of student engineers gains the attention of NASA. How will their research move their studies forward? Racing Magpie supports a new wave of Lakota artists looking to engage in community and landscape. We'll check in on a project funded by the Andy Warhol Foundation. The Black Hills Fly Fishers open a new option for membership. We'll talk about the importance of cold, clean water for us all. Plus, modern dance, modern art, and a modern cabaret. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. And I'm Lori Walsh. A Canadian-based gold producer wants to reopen a mine in the northern Black Hills that's been closed for more than two decades. Agnico Eagle now has exploration permits for the site. With gold prices at or near historic highs, activity could be coming to the abandoned mine south of Leed. SDPB's Lee Strubinger has more. Water flows out of a thick black tube down a ravine into Strawberry Creek. This quarter-mile stretch of waterway now functions as part of a complex filtration system. Surface gold mining exposed sulfuric rock that contaminates the water, making it harmful to fish. Even though mining stopped here decades ago, the caustic material must still be filtered before the water is reintroduced downstream. To the east are remnants of the decades-old open pit surface mine left by the Brome Mining Company. Giant stair steps of exposed rock called benches contour the hillside. Benches, but the benches are, are for safety, for catching rock as it falls. Um, That's Joy Jenkins with the Environmental Protection Agency out of Denver. The former mine is now a 1,000-acre Superfund site. The area is fenced off and contains water contaminated with elevated levels of zinc, cadmium, nickel, and copper. The EPA has managed it for the last two decades. This is exposed rock that occurred during the mining days, and so that uh, exposure uh, helps produce that acid mine drainage uh, water that we then address. And so the EPA pumps that contaminated water into large pits before filtering out the metals. To date, the federal and state governments have spent more than $120 million to treat water and provide remediation to the site. But that's an old number. Jenkins says the efforts cost about $2 million annually. The goal of the Superfund site is to cover the exposed rock with several feet of gravel, soil, and vegetation. But those reclamation efforts are on hold as gold producer Agnico Eagle considers reopening the Gilt Edge mine. Brome Mining abandoned the mine and declared bankruptcy when the price of gold fell about 20 years ago. Since then, the price of gold has recovered and occasionally hit record highs. Agnico first started working the site in 2018. Earlier this year, the company drilled 40 new test holes to determine the minerals below the surface. Now, Agnico has an agreement with the EPA to drill even more. Quinn Neff is a community relations manager with Agnico Eagle. He says the company is interested in the Gilt Edge mine site for two reasons. Based on some of the historical data at Gilt Edge, there is reason to believe there's potential there for a mineable resource at Gilt Edge that's still left. And second, uh, Agnico has a history of working with governments, uh, 
to find solutions to past legacy sites. The company points to its work reclaiming the Detour Lake mine in Canada, another open pit mine the company acquired. Neff says Agnico is aware of the acid mine drainage issue at Gilt Edge. As part of the company's initial investigation, Agnico is mapping the surface and underground locations of toxic rock. Neff says in the event the company reopens the Gilt Edge mine, that will allow it to better handle toxic drainage. He calls removing that cost burden from federal and state taxpayers a win-win. As of last month, Agnico is now covering the annual $2 million cost of water treatment for the life of a four-year agreement with the EPA. Some area residents are hesitant about the prospect of reopening the mine. I'm very concerned about the future of that. Rick Bell lives in Rapid City and is a retired environmental engineer. He's also with the group Dakota Rural Action, a grassroots conservation group. Bell says additional mining can lead to more exposure of sulfuric rock, which caused the acid water contamination to begin with. When the state allowed Brome to start mining again there, and it's a historic site, but they knew, they knew that all that pyrite was there. They knew that they, had, they were going to have an acid mine drainage problem from any future mining. And so that hasn't changed. <laughs> Agnico Eagle has already spent $1.5 million to investigate what's in the underground ore deposits. Between that and taking on the cost of cleanup, some worry that means a return to active mining. However, the project isn't even mentioned in the company's most recent annual report. Agnico Eagle says it generated $1.5 billion in revenue for the first quarter of 2023. The amount of money that Agnico uh, has invested in the Gilt Edge is a pittance. That's Mark Bowren, a professor of mining engineering and management at South Dakota Mines. It's not terribly significant in their overall exploration budget for a year. Bowren says Agnico's exploration of the Gilt Edge site is part of a strategy of gold exploration. A company wants to have several projects in the pipeline and prioritize those. So if Agnico has 100 exploration projects, Bowren says they might take 10 to the next level of which out of that 10, one might become a producing mine. That's the type of risk we're talking about. Bowron, who is a shareholder in Agnico, says reopening Gilt Edge is far from a done deal. But that all depends on what's found underground in the next few years. Meanwhile, the state of South Dakota is working with the federal government to transfer the remaining 266 acres of the 1,000-acre site. Officials say that will allow the state to quickly perform any remediation needed in the future without having to wait for outside federal approval. In the event the mine is reopened, the state would collect a 2% royalty on any gold recovered from the property. I'm SDPB's Lee Strubinger in Galena. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. An SDSU engineering group is trying to go where no SDSU project has gone before. The group is competing in a national and international competition put on by NASA. The competition, design an excavation robot that can work in even the harsh lunar conditions. The group is one of only 15 finalists and one of the few universities among those finalists, most of which are private aerospace companies. Dr. Todd Letcher is an associate professor in mechanical engineering at SDSU. He's also the Break the Ice Lunar Challenges Project Advisor, and he joins us now on the phone. Dr. Letcher, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. 
I'm looking at uh, the video of these student engineers uh, explaining the project, and the first thing that comes to my mind is how good this is for their careers as the experience and the process. So before we talk about what the competition is and what you're hoping for, just what has it been like to lead these students through the educational high points of this work? Uh, it's it's a really exciting project for all of us to work on. Uh, you don't you don't get this experience everywhere you go. So we're really happy that they've gotten such an awesome real world experience and such a high tech real world experience, competing against other seasoned aerospace engineers that have been doing this for decades and know exactly what they're doing already. And yeah. so it's been really fun to do that. And I think we've all gotten a lot out of it. All right, what is NASA trying to do? What's the goal here? Well, the goal is that eventually we're getting to Mars, but to get to Mars, we have to learn a lot about how to live off of the Earth, and a good starting point is working on the moon. And one of the biggest challenges is getting water up to the moon for the astronauts to use for just living purposes and for experiments and for all kinds of things. So instead of trying to transport all the water from Earth to moon, we're going to try to mine it from the moon itself. And on the moon, the, there is water deposits there, but they are in the form of tiny little ice crystals that are mixed into the, the soil, which they call regolith. And all of these ice crystal deposits are pretty much at the south pole of the moon. And over the course of millions of years, these ice crystals have kind of wandered their way into the regolith material and kind of formed a really soft concrete-like material. So our project is to figure out a way to excavate that site, move that material up to the top of the crater where they're going to have an ice processing station where we'll dump in raw materials and they will extract the water from it and then be able to somehow get that liquid water up to the top of a mountain where all the people are going to live. All right. So how many components go into the solution for this from the competition standpoint? How many components do you need to present to be considered? We have four main pieces of equipment that we've designed and built and are currently testing. We have uh, the main, the big one is our excavator, and the excavator breaks up the material, moves it into a hopper, an internal hopper on the excavator, and then dumps it into a waiting dump truck. And then the dump truck is the nimble one. It travels the long distances up the top of the crater to deposit the material. And then since that excavator is just going to sit at the bottom of the crater and do its job all day long every day, we're going to have a separate rover that replaces the battery pack for the excavator. So there will be another small nimble rover that travels between the base station and the excavator to replace battery packs. And then, of course, if we're um, replacing batteries and charging batteries on rovers, we need to have a charging station. So that's our fourth piece of equipment, the charging station. And all these pieces of equipment have to talk to each other. Where are they controlled from? On the real mission, they'll be controlled from Earth. Okay. And probably by that point, there will be some intelligence built in where they will just control themselves, too. Right. And um, right now in our testing that we're doing today and, and this week and next week, we are controlling them from a, a base station just located nearby where we're testing. What's the scale of these things? You mentioned one of them is small and nimble, and then you say a dump truck, and I think something much larger. So help us understand how big <laughs> these components are. 
Yeah, the biggest one is the excavator, and um, it's almost identical to the size of a Honda Civic in both size and weight. And the other two smaller nimble rovers, the dump truck and the battery swapping rover, those are like a, a large wheelbarrow on wheels, uh, four wheels that can drive itself. And then the battery charging station can hold um, basically three small rovers. All right. So where are you at in this competition? Because you're a lot further along um, than maybe a college team would be expected to be. Tell me where you're at in the competition and what happens next. Well, we are in the middle of our testing. So we just started our formal 15-day testing window yesterday. And it's been really fun, really nerve-wracking, really exciting. Um, so we started yesterday. We'll be testing for the next 14 days now. And um, after that, we have some data to submit to the competition. We have to tell them all of the things that we did throughout the 15 days. And we have to submit some compiled videos that we create that just kind of show how each rover works. In addition, we've got cameras that are live streaming to the judges right now so they can watch everything that's going on. And, uh, yeah, so we've got a lot of things to on our plate, I guess. For In your mind, what's the prize? I mean, what are you, what are you hoping for? The best thing that can come out of this project for your students. Um, the first good thing that comes out of it is just the learning experience and and learning, being able to see something you design, go into the shop, build it, and then take it out into real world conditions, or I guess real lunar conditions in this case, and go test it and see how well it turned out. So that's the first good thing that comes out of it. Second good thing is if NASA likes this technology, this could be incorporated into a real mission that goes to the moon in this decade yet. So I think that's our ultimate goal is to do really well in the competition and have NASA want to use our, our concepts. Tell me a little bit about, you know, you mentioned the, the tension of the testing phase. How do you walk students through, well, what happens if this fails? Or what happens if we hit an obstacle that we hadn't uh, planned on doing? What, what do you do when things go wrong? That is a great question. So part of the competition is that they're trying to simulate a real lunar mission. And on the moon, you can't call up Amazon and have them deliver some spare parts. So we had to pre-declare all of our spare parts that we were going to potentially need in the 15 days and any sort of tools that we would need for that 15 days. So um, we've been thinking about this the whole time we've been designing this equipment is what could fail, how do we fix it quickly and easily, and what kind of spare parts will we need. So we have, we've done a lot of things. We've just done some thinking processes, but we've also come out to our test site and we've tested things and see where things go wrong what could potentially break, and we've made plans for that. So it's been a constant process of thinking about how to keep these pieces of equipment running for long term. All right. Dr. Todd Letcher is Associate Professor in Mechanical Engineering at South Dakota State University. He's the Break the Ice Lunar Challenge Project Advisor for these students. Um, best of luck to you as you represent South right. Dakota. <laughs> with NASA. Thank you very much. All right. Keep in touch. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. 
A new opportunity for Lakota visual artists and creators is currently underway. Sinu Fund is a program bringing arts-based funding to the Lakota community. It's supported in partnership between Racing Magpie and the Andy Warhol Foundation. So joining us from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City, we have Tosa Tuhart. She's a Sinu Fund Program Coordinator at Racing Magpie. Tosa, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. This is such a remarkable opportunity, and I want to start with the Andy Warhol Foundation because Andy Warhol is well-known for seeing art in everything and uh, upholding an artistic expression in um, pop culture, in traditional arts, by looking in the mirror, by taking a self-portrait. He opened the door for people to think about art in a new way. What does the foundation do to continue that legacy, and how does it intersect with Racing Magpie? Yeah, so... um uh, so the Andy Warhol Foundation has uh, a program called the Regional Regranting Program. And so what the program does is it partners with local arts organiza organizations nationwide to make grants uh, to artists and collectives that uh, charter new creative territory in their communities. To be a regrantor, it is um, invitation only. So each network partner creates a program tailored to its region-specific needs and artistic identity. Um, the Regional Regranting Program was established in 2007 and is active in 32 cities and regions. And uh, it supports artists whose work falls outside of that scope of traditional presenting um, organizations. And it funds... Um, local uh, visual arts movements of independently organized, public-facing, artist-centered activity, um, which usually lies beyond that reach of traditional funding sources. All right, so needs and identity specific to your community. Tell me a little bit about that. So our the Sinu Fund um, partnered with Racing Magpie to bring... Um, an opportunity to fund Lakota visual artists who uh, may be based anywhere in the United States, but to do project work in Lakota communities. Um, because um, place and land are important to Lakota people, these projects um, will incur in um, current day um, so-called Western South Dakota. Mm -hmm. And so um, Lakota identity, um, Lakota arts in terms of um, anything from what our ancestors practiced to contemporary, um, innovative, experimental um, works is really what Sinew Fund is about. Who can apply? What uh, can they request and how? So um, applicants must be an enrolled member or proved ascendancy of the Lakota tribe and hold active community connections. They must be at least 18 years old by the application deadline, which is August 14th. Um, projects can be interdisciplinary, but must have a strong visual arts uh, based and um, Individual creatives, Lakota creatives, can apply for $2,500 in a collective or collaborative of Lakota creatives can apply for $5,000.
And then who makes the decision about uh, the uh, recipients? Is that you? Is that Racing Magpie? Or does the, the Warhol Foundation also weigh in on that? So actually, um, we have an independent uh, panel, okay. which includes um, either individuals who are Lakota arts professionals, part of other um, programs, community um, activists, as well as um, hopefully in the future, um, past recipients. And so these individuals are outside of Racing Magpie. They're not employees and they're not board members. All right. So let's talk about what your hopes are for applicants, because it's such a big opportunity. What would you say to people who are listening and they're thinking, oh, is this me? Is Do I have a good idea? Can I put this together? Because the deadline's coming up here um, August 14th. What do you want to say to the people who are considering their application? Well, first, I want to say that um, we use the term creative, Lakota creatives, to define um, anyone who is Lakota and creates, whether that's culture bearers, artists, makers. Um, I know in Lakota culture, sometimes art can't really be defined. Um, I also um, want to encourage folks to really think about a project that is not commercial based. You know, what uh, What can you do that is creative, um, experimental, risk-taking, imaginative? And how does that project engage community? How does it build relationships with human and non-human relatives? And how does it um, contribute to the Lakota continuum of visual arts? And lastly, um, it needs to be feasible. So the funding um, is meant to fund a whole project within a year of the award. Um, so thinking like, what can I do with this funding within one year? Mm. And my, I guess my hopes yeah. and dreams is that we, um, we bring, this uh, opportunity brings more, um, just more visual art and um, enjoyment and dialogue and community around visual arts away from um, just the idea that we need to sell art. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's, we could talk about that for a long time. So why does it matter that we go beyond, that the, the applicants for this and the recipients of this grant money go beyond, you know, the commercialization of this to a, uh, a place of connection or culture or community. Um, that's a big thing to consider, the role of art in those aspects of our lives, because sometimes we don't think about that at all. Well, it, I think it goes back to um, the vision um, and goals of Racing Magpie. Um, you know, we center the Lakota practice of being a good relative in everything that we do. And we want to elevate and amplify um, the work that artists are doing and um, are already doing in the communities. And sometimes folks don't think that teaching, teaching young people how to make a quilt or teaching um, how to make traditional games or different pieces that are actually very um, artistic, but also a way of life or sharing culture. Um, 
I think that's important because it creates more diverse views within our community and more um, sharing of each other. Yeah. I remember a community mural project that my daughter and I worked on here in Sioux Falls down in a, a local park. And I had gone to get supplies and came back and, you know, she was maybe in middle school, so she's kind of young. And the artist in charge had put her up on the hill and she was painting right next to this man that I didn't know. And I was like, oh, you know, immediately as a mother, I was like, who's that? Who's she talking to? <laughs> and the artist had done that very intentionally. So the two people from two very different backgrounds would have a conversation while they painted. And still to this day, when I drive by that mural, I can point out the spot where that friendship began in a community across generations in a, in a very small neighborhood. You just never know what's going to happen when people think big about the role of art in our lives. It's not just the product. I don't know. I 100% agree. It creates dialogue. It's a communication um, a communication uh, avenue that just brings a whole different, just a whole different way of connecting. Tulsa, do you find in Native communities that people have a hard time realizing that the thing they're doing is art because it's just something that they do? Um, but other people might, you know, especially a non-Native person, might walk by and go, wow, that is an incredible piece of art. But to the person who's making it, it's just, um, you know, or is that not the case at all? Like, how does that land with you when I say that? Like, do you know that, do people have a hard time acknowledging the, the craft of things? I think it really depends. Okay. Um, I think some folks don't feel comfortable calling themselves an artist. Um, some folks are not in the commercial um, sector. Some folks are not um, trained or have that professional development. So it, it really is a contrast between what Western society defines as um, art, whereas um, Lakota people, again, um, may not see what they're doing as art, but just something that they do and enjoy. Yeah, so interesting. All right, final thoughts for people who are listening who might want to put in an application by the deadline, August 14th, where can they get um, more information? Um, yeah, I, I encourage folks to um, check out our website, um, learn about learn more about the Sinew Fund. We have a lot of um, support materials. We have our email. Um, it, it is an online application, so if folks need help accessing online, we're here. We just want folks to have everything they need to apply, and this is just the first round of many, uh, many rounds. So... Um, we just really look forward to seeing the proposals that folks will bring forward. Yeah, I can't wait. Tosa Two Heart, um, this is a new fund, and uh, Racing Magpie always doing great work there. Thank you so much for stopping by our studio and uh, sharing that information with the community. Thank you. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. This week in 1995, Dr. John Green became the 15th superintendent of the South Dakota School for the Deaf in Sioux Falls. Green's nine-year tenure at the school included the implementation of a bilingual education program and the establishment of a Friends of the SDSD Foundation. 
The South Dakota School for the Deaf was established in 1880 by Reverend Thomas Berry. He was responsible for the school's administration, which included the hiring of the first teacher, Miss Jenny Wright. Miss Wright became superintendent a year later. The school settled into its current property on 8th Street in Sioux Falls. In 1889, South Dakota achieved statehood. The school was placed under the governance of the Board of Charities and Corrections. By 1916, the student population had grown to 100. In 1939, Arthur Michelbus began his 34-year tenure as superintendent. He brought many changes and improvements to the school. This included a speech and hearing aid clinic in 1942. It was the only one of its kind in the U.S. at the time. In 1945, the school was placed under the Board of Regents' governance. In 1966, the Hearing and Speech Center was established to serve children and adults who were deaf and hard of hearing and their families. Today, the focus of the School for the Deaf remains the same, to provide quality resources and support adapted to individual needs of children who are deaf or hard of hearing to help them become active, productive citizens. And it was this week in 1995 when Dr. John C. Green became the 15th superintendent. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant. Dr. Tennant is a writer and professor of history. Up next, we gaze into the cold, clear waters of South Dakota's streams with the Black Hills Fly Fishers. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. What does it mean to take collective responsibility for clean, cold water? The Black Hills Fly Fishers are expanding membership options. The group focuses on advocating for clean water and sustainable fisheries. Buddy Siner is president of the Black Hills Fly Fishers, and he's with me now on the phone. Hey, Buddy, welcome back. Lori, it's always great to talk to you. I've kind of missed hearing your voice. How are the fish biting? <laughs> <laughs> well, the fish are always biting for me, uh, which is always a good sign. But, you know, it's it's tomato season and it's peach season, Lori, so I couldn't be any better right now. Right. It's not a bad time to live in South Dakota. <laughs> Those two things. Right. So you're expanding membership to a no-cost option. Tell me a little bit about the Black Hills Fly Fishers and why you've decided to make this move. Yeah, the Black Hills Fly Fishers is a 43-year-old cold water conservation advocacy organization. So we're dedicated to advocating for clean water, uh, sustainable fisheries, and access to each of those things. And we've been around for a long time, and it's, it's been our members that have kept this mission and vision alive for so many years and, and supporting the work that we do every single day. But I, it's just the writings on the wall times are changing a little bit with membership organizations uh, trying to engage people and, and get them really excited about uh, the work that's being done uh, is, is always a constant challenge. And we just feel that in order to find more people that believe in our mission and, uh, and want to support the work we're doing, we just need to make it more available to people. And that's, that's why we expanded the, the uh, membership options a little bit, just to make it easier for people to become a part of it, uh, fewer walls to get in. And, and that's, 
really been working well for us lately. And, and the interesting thing is it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who has a tradition of fly fishing in their family. It can be someone who is interested in conservation, someone who is interested in, you know, wildlife and connection and a biologist interested in ecosystems. Say more about how people with different viewpoints come together around this idea of fly fishing that is not just an activity, but a, a concept, really. An ethos, if I, you will. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Lori, because it is really a, it is a mentality amongst more people than just fly fishers who believe in preserving resources that are important to so many people. And really, it's about water. When it all comes back to it, it's about cold, clean water. And the Black Hills and South Dakota in general, we have some of the best water resources on the planet. And uh, a lot of times it's taken for granted. But it's not just fly fishers that appreciate it. It's paddlers and it's hikers and it's bird watchers and, and wildlife viewers. Uh, anyone who loves being outside and enjoys nature is going to really have an appreciation in some way, shape, or form for our mission. And the projects that we are pursuing enhance not just fisheries, but habitats for all wildlife and for uh, public spaces and for, for natural spaces. That's mm -hmm. really what we're working to preserve. And, and there are so many people that want to be a part of it. We're, we're very appreciative for all of our partners and for all of our members for, for uh, helping us do it. Let's explore some of those projects. Where would you like to begin with uh, some future goals? Well, I, I would like to give some recognition for a project that we've recently completed with yeah. the support of South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. And the National Wild Turkey Federation was a partner. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and the U.S. Forest Service uh, helped us put a big fence project in down at Castle Creek below Deerfield Reservoir. Uh, this was a $130,000 project. Game Fish and Park stepped up and said, we'll take care of half of it if we can get the other money. And, and Game, uh, Black Hills Fly Fishers chipped in 30 and the other entities chipped in some money also. And that recently uh, completed the project um, and, and basically blocked off the riparian zone to, to cattle traffic. Cattle can be so, so hard on, um, on the riparian zone, which is the area from the water, from a creek to the forested area, I suppose, the, the in-between area that holds such valuable habitat um, in, a, in, a, in an area. And we just want to protect those, those areas more, and this fencing project does just that. So we're you know, really proud of that and yeah, excited Ke about it. Kevin Wooster came and talked to us about that project as well, so people can find more about that on our website already. But what I love about this is it's, you know, it's a fence. It seems pretty simple. <laughs> it is not simple. There is nothing simple about it. But it also seems tangible and doable in a way to say um, it's just a fascinating solution. And when you list the partners, I think sometimes, you know, especially on the radio or if you think, you know, you're you're trying to talk about an event and you got to quick list all the partners, it can go um, unnoticed that those are real partnerships. Those are real relationships that you have built. And it and not everybody in those different organizations um, sees life the same way. There's a lot of compromise in here that has to happen. Talk a little bit about the importance of partnerships and relationship when it comes to preserving uh, some of these precious and, frankly, fairly fragile areas. Well, it really goes back to what you said earlier, Lori, in that 
everyone has a stake, some kind of a stake in this. So really you're considering all stakeholders in this pro in this process. It might not be the same stake. You know, our stake is for fish uh, because, and the habitat surrounding a Creek is, is beneficial to our fish, but that habitat is also beneficial for turkeys and for elk and for deer. So all those other partners coming into the zone um, have a different stake in the game, but we all have a, have an appreciation for it one way or another. And then of course you have, landowners um in this case in the in the fencing case it was the u.s forest service so that's that might be the biggest partnership um uh, opportunity for us in the future is building those partnerships with private landowners with the u.s forest service to look take a really strong look at okay what areas can we really make a big impact on these properties uh and really help areas um and and the wildlife around there that people might not see every day, but it's going to make a bigger impact. So that's going to be one of the big opportunities for us moving forward. And um, we're really excited to pursue that. All right. In our remaining minute, tell me one project for the future that you're looking forward to developing those partnerships around. We are partnering with Mr. Jason Alley, uh, Jackalope Productions, to create a an educational video surrounding the hydrology of the Black Hills. I'm so excited mm-hmm. about this because we are going to use this video to educate not only the public, the people that, you know, will be utilizing these resources, but but administrators and city officials and the people who are working to manage these resources to, to let them know that, hey, this is a really big priority. This is why it's so important to our communities that we take care of this resource and we manage it properly. Uh, and, and do it in a really professional way, a, a video that can be used forever, that will inspire people, that will move people to want to act, clean up the creek, keep the creek clean, um, not all, just all creeks in the Black Hills and beyond, and we're really excited about that. So that, that's an ongoing thing. We're, we're kind of middle of the road. We're going to start filming soon and, and recording conversations, and can't wait to see the final product and share it with you guys. Awesome. Buddy Signer is president of the Black Hills Fly Fishers. Uh, we'll put some links up on our website so you can find more about their work and about uh, their new membership that's no cost so you can get connected. Buddy, thanks for being here. appreciate it. Thank you, Lori. Have a great day. All right. Our friends from the Lira Dance Company have returned to... The studio. Sioux Falls' first professional dancing theater company will dance into their latest season with an annual fundraiser kicking off this Thursday. The White Wine Cabaret, August 3rd and 4th, 7 p.m. local time, both nights. Doors open at the Calico Skies Vineyard and Winery in Inwood, Iowa at 5.30. Seated around the table with me, Lisa Conlin, Raina Rasmussen, co-artistic directors of Lira and Tara Gevins, a dancer with the company. Lisa, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Lori. It's always good to see your beautiful face. Oh, it's good to see you too. Uh, Raina, same. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And thank Tara, you. nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I'm going to have you pull that microphone up a little bit closer to your mouth, Tara. Oh, and Raina has the wind chimes on her oh, microphone. This so makes me so happy. <laughs> Ooh, that's perfect. This is meant to be right here. Ah. <laughs> uh, professional dance is one of my uh, favorite things even though I don't always make it to the shows because of conflicts but just knowing that you're doing it and it has been how many years now this is our eighth season eighth season 
Isn't that crazy? How much has changed? You dance through COVID. You figure that out. You're dancing through a growing community. Um, tell me a little bit about how it's evolved, Lisa. Yeah, so this year we have 25 dancers, and um, we have four guest choreographers on the program, and we have a collaboration with Bob Home, um, musician and singer. So um, over the eight years, Rain and I really love to collaborate with new guest artists, new musicians, um, different theater companies in town, and we do, and then we've been asked to be in their pieces as well. Yeah. So. Um, it's super fun to um, explore all the different arts that's going on and do all those different collaborations. Okay, you're still friends. You're still, co- <laughs> yeah, right? Which is not necessary. I'm sure you don't have to tell me about the bad days, but I'm sure there have been some. But for people who are in artistic partnerships with people who are friends, um, how have you maintained a creative give and take that helps the dancers around you grow? the community grow, and also helps you grow as artists? Raina? It's such a good question because we were just talking about this the other day because not this doesn't always happen in groups and artists. I was just talking to my best friend Kirsten about this in Missoula. And um, she's like, how does that work? And I said, honestly, I totally trust Lisa as an artist, and I think she trusts me as an artist. And we kind of do our own thing where she's like, here's my pieces, here's your pieces. Sometimes we're in each other's pieces, sometimes we're not. Um, But sometimes we don't even see each other's pieces until the week of the show. So a lot of times, yeah, we really have um, to have trust in each other. Like, I'm expecting great things from you. You're expecting great things from me. And we're going to produce these pieces, and we'll see you the week of the show. Um, Sometimes we see each other's pieces all the time. But I also um, know that Lisa is very similar to me in the fact that we are both willing to put in so much extra time for only the for the love of dance yeah. because we want these people to love it. We want these people to audition again. We want these people to be in our pieces again. And we're both willing to put in extra time because we're so invested in our own pieces and our own art. Yeah. Tara, what has that been like to you to, um, is this your first season this with them? This is my first season. Okay. So you come into this group and I, you know, my daughter just graduated from college and, you know, she's in her first theatrical production that's outside of, of the college or high school setting. And one of the things she said to me was, I get to act in a a play where the people who are the same are the age of the characters. And I was like, oh, I never thought of that before, that when you're in college, you know, the 50-year-old is played by a 22-year-old. And she's like, now it's a 50-year-old. And that actor brings something different to to the experience. So when you enter a new, you know, this is the dance company, this is the showcase that we're going to put together what was that like for you as a dancer to kind of figure out where you fit into it? It was, I would say it was easier to figure out with Raina where I was able to fit in because I grew up dancing with her, whereas with Lisa, I only met her a couple years ago, so it was a bit more difficult. But then also being able to bond with all the other girls and Mr. Thomas and Tony and everyone, it was able to really melt into everyone else's dancing style and being able to work with each other when it comes to any kind of style or lifts, anything, and working together as a team. How do you want to learn to trust somebody? Because if the choreographer sets a dance on you and you're like, uh, this is new, maybe I don't even like it at first, how do you figure out how to be open to what a choreographer is thinking when it wasn't your, you know, it wasn't your idea, but here you are bringing yourself <laughs> to it. 
I've always put all of my trust in these two specifically. Like, I don't question what they're doing. I just go with it because their (laughs) minds work in ways I don't understand at all. But we had a choreographer this year, (laughs) Hannah, who, like, her mind works in crazy ways. And it just all of it took everyone a lot of trust to figure out what she was doing. And her piece is amazing. They have little dancers in their heads yeah. moving around. I don't understand it either. <laughs> yeah. And I've been interviewing these two for more than eight years. Lisa, how does a choreographer's brain work? How are you coming up with new, uh, new expressions? I don't even know what to call it. Because it's not just new moves or new combinations. It's like a whole new expression, a new idea. Yeah. That's so funny. Um, I just had this conversation with Bob Winland from Goodnight Theater Collective because he and I are doing a project this fall. But he was like, how do you come up with the dances? Yeah. And and I literally I have a chair that I sit in in my sunroom and I'll play the music and ideas just start coming to me as I play the music. And usually for me, um, I know different choreographers work different ways, but for me, usually I have um, a story um, that I want to tell with my work. And sometimes you might be able to figure out the story and sometimes you might not be able to. But um, I only like to choreograph when I feel like I have something to say. Um, and so every time I do a show, it's been a whole year. So I feel like I've learned from different experiences that, that have happened in my life yeah. or in other people's life. Um, and so then I usually try and... Um, end up weaving that into a story and the music really really inspires me and me as an audience member I don't need to know the story that was in your head to appreciate the dance although sometimes because I know you I might be like "Mm, I think that is a reference to something else but in general that is uh it can be relevant or it doesn't have to be oh yeah I love that yeah Yeah. Mm. Raina as a choreographer are you sitting in a chair coming up with ideas, or do you have a different process? I, I'm i similar to Lisa. It really simplifies what she just said. That's not what she yeah, just said. But yeah. I'm just, uh, starting, yes. we're starting with that moment of sitting in the chair. Yeah. Right. I, um, I'm similar to Lisa where it's sometimes the music that really inspires me because I love music so much. Yeah. But usually for me, it's, um, it's like a healing process. So I feel if I choreograph something about a story in my life or even like a friend, like if I want to tell Tara's story through movement, I feel like I can heal that part of the story and move on. So for Mm -hmm. me, it's like almost like I'm trying to get it out of me. And once it's done, then I'm almost done. So it's really interesting because I, it's like a healing for me to choreograph. Obviously when I'm teaching three years old, three year olds and I'm teaching a dance, it's usually the music and costumes and, mm-hmm. and steps and learning. Yeah. But when I'm doing for Lyra is more of a healing process. All right. Final thoughts on the event that you want to let people know. One of you want to take the lead on that in our last 30 seconds? Oh, yeah. So come on out. Um, Wood-burning pizza and wine available. We have really cool, fun, creative silent auction items for sale. Um, Live music, live singing, live dance, live theater. Um, They're going to get it all. And it's a beautiful, beautiful setting in Calico Skies. And it's site-specific, so it's outside and inside. Right. Mm -hmm. So that means, if you're in the audience and want to try this out, that they are going to be using pretty much anything in that space in, in a way that you have not yet imagined. Trust me. Thank you, friends. Thank you so Thank much, you. Lori. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you tonight at the Corn Palace 
In Mitchell Outside, Carl Gerke brings you a jazz nightly live broadcast featuring Mitchell's own William Flynn, and it's going to be live streamed. SD.net. Tune in at 7, 8 p.m. Central, 7 Mountain. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening.